Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. Well, good morning, church. I just want to greet everyone in the mighty name of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's what a joy it is just to stand here and look at these beautiful faces. We missed you for a long, long time. And I'm only praying that it's going to expand and, and we'll be able to have all the families back again so we can worship together. I want to welcome those who are here for the first time and I want you to meet, especially my cousins uh, who are here. And uh, thank you for coming. And uh, uh, you know, my uncle passed away, their daughters are here and I want you to meet them after the service as well. And I want to greet everyone, those who are watching online. It's a joyful thing, and uh, I just want to welcome you for the tour, the Colossians we have been going through, and I hope you are enjoying the journey, and well, here we are, church, I don't know about you, I am excited as I read through the book of Colossians, and today we'll be looking at five verses, and starting with chapter 2, verses 6 to 10, and uh, I would strongly encourage you to turn on your, bi- open your Bibles to chapter 2, verses 10 to 6 to 10. Now, last week, we looked at five verses, verses 1 to 5, and Paul was speaking to the church in Colossae, and he was telling telling them how to combat the spiritual deception as a body of believers. We looked at it last Sunday. We learned that we should be aware of the imminent threat. Now, we cannot belittle the threat of the heretical teaching that's coming up in the churches, and this applies to us too. And then we looked at that we should belong to a Christocentric church. And we examined as to what the characteristics of a Christocentric church would be. And we saw from the passage that it must be a praying church that is united in love. And it must be a caring church. It must be a Bible-centered church, spiritually growing, and have the ability for discernment. And finally, we said that it has got to be a disciplined and stable in faith, church. Now, this will help us combat the spiritual deception. Now, I told you I am the tour guide on this particular tour, and I will pause at significant scenic points so that you can take some great pictures using your theological cameras for your own Colossian collage that you like to develop or or put together. Today, we are at one of those important scenic points, and uh, it really warrants our full attention. That doesn't mean I'm belittling the other passages, text text passages, but today I want you to keep a close look at the passage and come along with me. You know, as you heard uh, some pastors saying that, I like to use the same phrase, put this in your theological pipe and smoke it. You know what that means? It means that you accept it, whether you like it or not, what we, are going to, what we are going to talk about today. So I want you to be alert and stay focused. Church, the best way to study a text, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, is to read through so that you understand the context. 
and then you have to break it down into thought units. And not only breaking it down into thought units, I would encourage you to give titles for every thought, thought unit. That way you will understand and remember and retain what you are reading uh, from the text. So I've given some titles here as I went through these uh, five verses. So what we are seeing in verses 6 to 10 is Paul is actually continuing his instruction to the believers, and in three ways. You heard the passage being read. In verses... I just want to be sure I saw him. Just bear with me. Yeah. Okay, perfect. In verses 6 to 7, just I'm giving you the big picture, he gives them a direction or an exhortation. That's what he's doing there. And in verse 8, as we break it down, he's asking them to exercise discretion. They're warning them of the imminent threat. And in verse 9 to 10, Paul gives them discernment. They're encouraging them, reminding them of their position in Christ. So with that introduction, let us start with verse number 6. Now, as you read through verse number 6, this is what it says. As you, therefore, have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Verse 6. Church, Paul is not talking about how they received Christ. He is reminding them, you have already received Him, Christ Jesus the Lord. Now do something about it. That's what Paul is saying here. So what do you take from this? This message is for the believers in the Colossian church. Why? Because it says you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. So all the more reason why this is applicable to us believers today, and not only to our church, but to church across the globe. Now for us to understand this in today's context, we need to know what the heretical teachers or false teachers may be doing or saying today. What they do is they take the truth and they stretch it. They stretch it a little bit so if you are not careful, you will fall prey. That's what Paul is telling here. He's giving the warning to the, to the saints in Colossae and it's applicable to every one of us. You might have heard some people say that don't put God in a box. You heard that? Now, you go to a pastor and say, Pastor, this is not exactly what God said that he would do in this text. And this heretical teacher might say, don't put God in a box. And he will let his imagination run riot to present the scripture the way that he thinks he wants to say. Or some, so you would have heard someone saying, touch not the Lord's anointed. That's one way of protecting my behavior or my views. Or you would have heard someone said, God told me so. When someone comes and says, God told me so, I'm not saying God doesn't speak to you. I'm not saying that. But the moment someone says, God told me so, you have no grounds to talk, talk any further. Or someone might say, you know, you've got to give the money or else God will curse you. Now that is also, I'm not, I'm not belittling 
oh, I am not, uh, yeah, I'm not saying that we shouldn't give money to the church. That's our responsibility. But Paul says, be a cheerful giver. Not out of con compulsion, but out of conviction. And then they might say, you are, you are not truly saved unless, and the clauses can go on and on and on. In Colossae, the false teachers probably weren't openly denying Christ. But they were saying that to be fulfilled, that's what they're saying. You have to learn their secrets. You have to follow their man-made rules. You have to worship the angels. And we see that throughout the book of Colossians. You have to understand the visions that they have seen. That Christ alone was not enough. That's what they're saying. So Paul reminds them, you have received, you have received what? Christ Jesus the Lord. So church, why is it important? Why should Paul say you have received Christ Jesus the Lord? The order of the name Christ Jesus the Lord is significant because the exact Greek sequence of names is unique only here in the New Testament. First, he says, the one you received is Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. The Messiah, the anointed one. Christ is the Greek and Messiah is the Hebrew for anointed one. So Paul is saying he is the one prophesied in the Hebrew scriptures, written centuries before he was born. Paul is saying that he is God's anointed king. He is the prophet, he is the priest. And then he says, not only just Christ, he is Jesus. What do you mean by that? Jesus is the human name. It talks about his humanity. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. So Jesus himself said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. So Christ, Christ Jesus is the only Savior God has provided for helplessly lost sinners like you and me. So at this time, church, it is important for us to be reminded of who this Jesus is. Because the name Jesus has been very casually used today. When you say the name of Jesus, it speaks of his distinctive character or quality and his work. Salvation is in the name of Jesus alone, Acts 4.12. Forgiveness of sins is received through the name of Jesus, Acts 10.43. Believers are baptized in the name of Jesus, Acts 2.38. Healings and miracles are performed in the name of Jesus, Acts 3.16. The name of Jesus reminds us of the power and the presence and the purpose of the risen Christ. And thirdly, he says, not only Christ Jesus, the Lord the Lord. The term the Lord refers to his deity. So in the Old Testament, Lord is a personal, is, is, a, is, a, is a personal covenant name of God. It focuses on his absolute sovereignty as the creator of the universe, the ruler over all that exists. It means, church, what he commands, we must obey. That's what it means when you use the word the Lord. Paul is saying that they must, not, they must not trade this sovereign Lord 
for a false substitute. That's what Paul is saying here. So in essence, Paul is reminding you have received, you believers have received, applies to you and me today, Christ Jesus the Lord. So Paul is telling them that he alone is the Messiah, the salvation is only found in him, that he possesses both humanity and divinity, that he is the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying, because you have received him, now do something about it. You walk in him. What does that mean? It's a call for a change of behavior. That's what exhortation means. The term exhortation means it's a call for a change of behavior. And that's what you find in verse number 7 as you look at this. Look at verse number 7. Now, in verse number 7, Paul describes what it means to walk in him. Paul uses here four participles, and I'm going to explain that to you, to elaborate on what this walk in Christ looks like. Let's read it. Rooted and built up in him, verse number 7. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. And I'm following the NKJV version in case you see a difference of terminology, because the one that was read was ESV. The four participles that you see here is you were and you are still rooted in him. You are being built up in him. You have to be established in, it, in the faith, abounding in it with thanksgiving, meaning in other words, translation is overflowing with gratitude. So the first three participles that we look at is the passive voice, is emphasizing that God is working these things in us. But the last one, the final one, is active, pointing to our responsibility in light of this to be thankful. That's what you're seeing here. So let's look at this briefly at each one of them. To walk with Christ Jesus, the Lord, it means being rooted in him. What does that mean? This picture is obviously a tree firmly rooted so that it gets the water and the nutrients from the soil to grow and be healthy. It can withstand the storms that blow against it and endure times of drought because of its roots. Because of its roots. The roots are hidden from everyone's view. You don't see the roots but they're absolutely essential. Without the deep roots, the tree will fall over in a storm or die during drought. When we genuinely trust in Christ, initially, God roots us in Him. God roots us in Him. But we need to continually sink down more roots into him, there is a responsibility that we have. This is the hidden part of your walk with Christ the others don't see. Nobody sees the root. This is the hidden part. It refers to your heart before God and your time alone with God. So I know there are a lot of people go to church and they act like Christians and outwardly they look like Christians, they smell like Christians. But are they truly rooted in Him? They never spend time alone with Him, seeking Him in His Word and in prayer. A storm comes up and they crash. And you know that, then they wonder why. 
Why pastor? Why am I being crashed? They weren't rooted in Christ. So the first question I want to ask you, church, is that are you sinking down your roots in Him by spending dedicated time alone with Him? That's the first question. Secondly, we see that to walk in Christ means that being built up in Him. Now, obviously, built up in Him, it talks about building. Uh, you would have seen buildings under construction. The present participle indicates is a steady process. There's a progress towards completion. It's being built. It's not finished yet. It's our sanctification. Each day, we are being built up. If you have watched a building under construction, sometimes, church, the progress is very evident. You can see the, the, the scaffoldings going up, they are pouring concrete, and the walls are coming up. But there are some days that you are looking at the building, you cannot see anything that is happening. Why? Things are happening inside. There is wiring and there's plumbing that you can't see from outside. It's the same in our own spiritual life, church. Those wiring and plumbing are very essential for the finished building. When you walk with the Lord, sometimes there are obvious changes that the others can see. The external, your behavior. The internal is your attitude, your heart transformation. The Lord is steadily at work on areas that aren't as dramatic but just as necessary. Nevertheless, church, it is a sanctifying process. That is why Paul says you work out your salvation. So the question I want to ask you is, are you working out your salvation? If so, others can see a progressive sanctification in your life. Does anyone see your heart transformation? Will your children testify to that? Do they see that in your daily walk? Will your spouse vouch for it? Because they see the internals. In a church, we all look holy and nice. And the others see the external. How about your workmates? Are you being built up? And thirdly, we see that we are being established in the faith. Now, Paul is talking to the saints in Colossae, and they are equipping him or, or giving them instructions how to combat this heretical teaching. And one of the things is being established in faith. In other words, being established in Christian faith just as you have been taught means to confirm or to make irrevocable in sound doctrine. You know what you, what you believe in. That's what it means. That they, you are not on a shaky ground. You understand your growing knowledge of sound doctrine will protect you from the many winds of false teaching that blows others off course. So to go on with Christ, you must make a deliberate effort to be established in faith. What are you doing about establishing your faith? How do you get faith? How, do you, how is the faith increase in your life? Faith comes from what? Hearing. Hearing what? The Word. So in other words, church, my question to you is how much time are you spending on the Word so that you can grow 
in your faith, and your faith can be established so that you will not be swayed by the heretical teaching. Fourthly, he says here, is overflowing with gratitude. In other words, abounding in it with thanksgiving. The picture here is a river overflowing its banks. There is just too much water to stay in the normal flow, so it floods out over the surrounding land. That's how our gratitude to God should be, church. You might wonder, why should I be grateful to God? Why should I be grateful to God for all that He has done for me? It's not for the vehicle that He gave me, not because of the house He gave me, not because of the job He gave me, but because of the greatest gift that God gave me, the gift of salvation. It shows the abounding. But what do we do as believers? We grumble, we murmur, we complain, we are never satisfied. Never satisfied. We are like the Israelites in the wilderness. Instead of thanking God for delivering them from the Egypt, we keep complaining. Where is my manna? Where is my drink? Where are my slippers? And where are my shoes? And where are my jackets and coats? And we complain about the little things. But if you can truly pause and think about Salvation Church, you'll be jumping with joy. How come we are able to bury our loved ones who die in Christ because of the salvation that we have? We should be bubbling. We should be grateful. That's what Paul is talking about here. Paul has always mentioned in throughout the book of Colossians that we need to have the grateful heart. In verse chapter 1, verse 12, he's giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to shine the inheritance of the saint in light. We looked at it a few weeks ago. It's talking about our salvation. Be thankful. That's what Paul is saying. This application, church, that grumblers will be more susceptible to the lure of false teaching. If you are somebody who is not overflowing with joy, you can easily be swayed. Because you are looking for joy in the wrong places. Even in your marriage, think about this, church. If you are thankful for your spouse and delight in him or her, you are less susceptible to the temptations of another person. Yes or no? We married people, we know that. With the Lord, a grateful heart that is satisfied daily with his abundant blessings won't, won't be attracted by false teaching. So let's move on to the second part. Now, having exhorted, having called for a change of behavior, in light of having Christ Jesus the Lord, you walk in Him, and he's explaining all that. Now he goes on to, Paul gives them a warning. Verse number 8. Verse number 8, he says, <clears throat> Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Church is only in verse 8 in the New Testament that you see the word philosophy, only in this particular verse that you see that. So what Paul was taking the false teacher's terms, he's using the same terms for their teaching and saying it sounds impressive, it promises a lot of things, but it's deceptive, empty shell. If you're not careful, they'll carry you away as captives to it. So Paul says that these false philosophy and empty deceit are from two sources that it comes. 
And you see it in the scripture here. As you look at this, it says it's firstly the tradition of men. And secondly, it says the basic principles of the world. The ESV might say the elemental spirits of the world. Let's break it down. First, the tradition of men. Tradition is that which is given from one to the other. That's what tradition means. Just because people believed something and handed it down through the years, it does not make it true. Let's be clear on that. Tradition usually serves to be responsible for errors. For the longest time, everyone thought that the earth was flat. Yes or no? That's what the people believed in it. But if you go to the scriptures, the scripture is very clear. Isaiah 40, 22, he who sits above the circle of the earth. Long before it was determined that the earth was round, you find it in the scriptures. But the traditions refuse people to believe in it. Job 26, 7, he hangs the earth on nothing. Philosophers ask a lot of difficult questions, church. They didn't have any viable answers themselves as to the age of earth, about the evolution theories, but they have an arrogance about their own intellect. They delighted in shooting down the arguments, especially for the existence of God. You would have seen that. You would have come across many philosophers like that. They love to point out what they thought were contradictions in the Bible. They thrive on that. They replace the authority of God's revealed truth with proud human reasons. That's what Paul means here when he says the tradition of men. It originates with man, not with God. It draws people in as Satan deceived Eve by questioning what God has said. What did Satan tell Eve? Did God really say it? Just plant a seed of doubt. That's what we are looking at here by appealing to the proud thought. The philosophers think we are smart enough to determine what is spiritually true or false. The second source of the false philosophy Paul is talking about is the elementary principles of the world or the basic principles of the world. Now, Paul uses the same word in verse 20 and also in Galatians chapter 4. Based on the context, both here and in the book of Galatians, the elementary principles Paul is referring to is an, to an approach to God by keeping certain rules. As you read through the book of Colossians, and you will learn that as we go through this, it will unfold that false teachers also may have emphasized on circumcision. You can look at it next Sunday. They emphasized on certain food and drink. They emphasized with keeping religious festivals and Sabbath days. In essence, these would, these would religious rules and rites distract from the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It provided a basis for people who kept these man-made rules to glory in the flesh. Paul is actually re referring to this as elementary. Paul is using sarcasm here, the way he writes here. He put down the false teachers who are puffed up with the knowledge and philosophy. One theologian put it this way. He says, it is an elementary discipline of mundane ordinances fit only for children. If you are truly a believer in Christ, 
And if we truly understand who Christ Jesus the Lord is, the philosophers cannot fool you. Cannot fool you. That's why it's, this is for the for spiritually who are in the kindergarten that, that the philosophers can fool. That's what he's talking about here. So who is behind these human-based philosophies? Of course, it is the demonic power. And in verse 23, he says, these philosophers, when they come and talk to you, this is how it will look like. I need help. Okay. Verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. What does that mean? There is no wisdom, but there is an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. Such rules-based approaches may appear to be right way to live, but they fail because they cannot deal with sin in the human heart. Only Christ and the new birth can change the heart, church. Church, here's a warning to us. Even in our days today, the rules may have changed, but the enemy still uses this legalistic, flesh-exalting approach to lure people away from the gospel. It usually elevates minor points of doctrine into major points. And it causes a division. It emphasizes man-made rules and more important than the two greatest commandments that the Lord has, God has mentioned, loving God and loving each other. In every case, you will see it appeals to human pride by saying, by believing certain non-essential things or keeping certain man-made commandments, you are acceptable to God. Such religious approaches to God are counterfeits. So the question is, how then can we know true Christianity? And you find it in, in that verse at the very end. Paul sums it up with the phrase, according to Christ. Jesus Christ is at the center of true Christianity. That's why we, are look, we looked at for the last few Sundays, you must have a Christocentric life and belong to a Christocentric church in order for you to protect yourself from the attack of the devil. Now let's move on to the last two verses. Now Paul actually tells us in verses 9 and 10 exactly what that means. Union with the living Christ is all we need. Let's look at verse number 9 and 10. Hear me as I read. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In these two verses, last two verses, Paul makes two assertions about the sufficiency of Jesus Christ setting off each with the phrase, in him. The first one that you find in verse number 9, it talks about the sufficiency of Christ himself. In him dwells the, all the fullness of God at bodily. In verse number 10, and also you learn that in verse number 11, it talks about the sufficiency we enjoy by virtue of our union with him. So Paul's vocabulary I mean, was aimed directly at the words used by the enemies of the gospel. For in him, in whom? In Jesus, that's what he says, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. 
This is one of the most direct and clear statements of the deity of Jesus Christ in all scriptures. Because the false teachers emphasized a concept of fullness. They viewed the flesh as evil, we studied that before, thus denying the true humanity of Jesus. We know that. That's what the false teachers were doing. Against those errors, Paul asserts both the full deity and complete humanity of Jesus Christ here. Look at verse number 9 again. As we look at this, for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Christ is sufficient because he is the eternal God in human flesh. That's what Paul is telling here. The word Godhead in the ESV you'll find as a word deity. It means that Jesus Christ was and is absolute and perfect God. That's what they're seeing here. Not just part of the divine nature or divine quality as some of the heretical teachers might do, especially the JWs. But the fullness of the Godhead dwells in Christ Jesus. The fullness refers to the totality of the divine powers and attributes. The term dwells means Jesus is and always has been God. So Paul also presents that Jesus is truly human. God's fullness dwells in Jesus bodily. When you use the word bodily, this refers to the incarnation. When the eternal word took on human flesh through the virgin birth, Jesus possessed a sinless human body. That's what he's talking about here. So church, if Jesus is not fully human, he cannot bear human sins. If Jesus is not fully human, he cannot sympathize with us, with our weaknesses, to be our faithful high priest. So Paul's point is that if Jesus Christ is the eternal God in human flesh, what more could we need? A philosophy of man-made rules cannot compare to the perfect Savior we have in Christ. And then, in verse number 10, as you look at this, he says, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Meaning Christ is sufficient because in union with him, we are complete. The Greek text reads literally like this. And you are in him, having been fulfilled, who is the head of all rule and authority. Church complete is related to the Greek word for the fullness of deity in Christ. So Paul is saying Christ has the fullness of deity dwelling in him, and you are in him, therefore you have been made full in his fullness. You don't need anything else. The Living Bible paraphrases this way. So you have everything when you have Christ, and you are filled with God through the union with Christ. Now what are the heretical teachers doing? They are coming to you and you are saying that you are not full yet. I'm using my own term here. You need something extra for this. In order for you to experience God, you need something extra. But whereas he says, you are complete. You are complete in him. So how do you comprehend this church? Here's a group of people who are coming and telling you you are not complete. You need more stuff. And these are the man-made rules and the rituals. And on the other hand, we see that Paul is saying you are complete in him. How do you understand that? 
Let me show you a picture now. What do you see in this picture? You see two palms, isn't it? One of the infant and the other of the mother. How do you compare them? One is small and the other one is big. Look at it again. What is common for both? They both have five fingers. They both have a palm. They both are complete. But with time, the little palm and the fingers will grow. When you are born in the world, you are born complete. Complete. You don't get additional parts as you grow. You don't get fingers and legs later like the tadpole. You don't get it. You have got everything you will ever need at the time of your birth. But you can't use it to its full potential until you grow in age and strength, isn't it? But you have got the whole package right from the start. Church, it's the same spiritually. It's the same spiritually. You get everything in Christ the instant you are born again. Everything. You are joined in Him in such an intimate way that Paul often refers to it being in Him. Nothing more need to be added. And Peter says that in 2 Peter 1.3, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. We may not understand it all or be able to use it until we grow in the Lord. But we don't lack anything. We have everything in it. So Paul concludes here in verse number 10 by adding that Christ is the head of principality and power. In other translations, over all rule and authority. You are complete in Christ. Listen very carefully, church. He is the head. He is your rule. He is your authority. The false teachers were promoting worship of angels. So Paul is saying that not only did Christ create all angelic beings, He rules them. He rules them. So why worship the creature rather than the almighty creator? He is all that you need. So in conclusion, church, now we see that Paul is writing to a church that faces an imminent threat from the heretics, the false teachers. Paul is helping them with ways to overcome, to withstand the enemy's attack. Church, we too are susceptible to the enemy's attack coming in varying forms today. I, for me, I think that we are in a much more vulnerable position than the church in Colossae. Because of the new age movement, because of JWs, because of the compromised lifestyle, because of the political tolerance we are talking about, because of inclusiveness, so many things. We are in a much more vulnerable stage. So in today's text, as we look at it, Paul lists down three things to reflect on as believers. He begins by reminding the recipients what they have received, Christ Jesus the Lord. He starts by that. So his first Paul's exhortation is, or the direction he's giving, you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. The question to you and me is that, first of all, 
before we go further, have we received him as our personal Lord and Savior? That's the first thing that we need to... If so, Paul speaks of the evidence. You must be walking in him. You are rooted in him, meaning you, are, you have dedicated time with him. You are being built up, meaning it's a progressional sanctification. You'll be sinning less and less with each passing day. You are growing in your faith and dwelling in the word. You demonstrate an attitude of gratitude which is overflowing with thanksgiving. Does that represent you, church? Secondly, that we find that Paul gives a warning to us. He says, as you look at this, he says, not to be deceived by the tradition of men or the basic principles of the world, which Paul says would distract us from the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will lure us away from the truth. And thirdly, he gives us, he's, he's encouraging us. There's a discernment that's needed because Paul says that it, it, talking of the sufficiency of Christ in him the fullness of God had bodily. And secondly, he talks about the sufficiency we, we enjoy by virtue of our union with him. He says we are complete in him. We do not need to add anything to it. We don't have to make it more complete. No schemes of men, no philosophy. Implying when Jesus said it is finished, it is finished indeed. We only need to grow in Christ. And the growth is only possible when we surrender with obedience, accepting him as the head of all principality and power. So let me ask these questions, church, as I close this. These are life lessons I want you to take from this. Number one, have you received Jesus as the Lord and Savior? It applies to you who are in person here. It applies to those who are listening online or watching online. If you have not, let today be the day. Reach out to me. Reach out to one of the elders. We are most willing to spend time with you to understand, make you explain the term receiving Christ Jesus the Lord. Secondly, if you have, are you willing to walk with him? So what does it mean? It means are you rooted in him? Or it means are you being built up daily? Are you established in your faith? Do you possess a grateful heart? And because you are complete in him, the third thing I want to leave with you, I told you you are complete in him. We do not need to add anything more to what he has accomplished for your salvation. All we need to do, church, because he is the head, just surrender to his lordship. In your growth, he is the head of all principality and power. When you do that, then no one will cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. That's what you learned from this passage. And I hope this has been helpful to you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come at this time. And they have chosen a very beautiful hymn. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. Why? Because we are made complete in him. We've got to trust and obey. We need to comply 